I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. This is a super fun episode. My guest for today is Ali Spots de Lazare, and I'm telling you, you can just feel the energy between Allie and I. We talk about so many things in this podcast, but I think the most important is we talk about the fact that people are craving to be heard, to feel seen, to feel connected. Unfortunately, eating disorders, eating disorder behaviors, all that goes into it could not take you farther away from that. As a result, we use more eating disorder behaviors and more eating disorder thoughts because we think that's what's going to get us out of this isolation. And again, it keeps us stuck. It's a really fun episode. All right, let's get going. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. We are in for such a treat. I first want to introduce you to our guest. Today, we have Ali Spots DeLazar, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist in California. Ali, welcome to the show. Hello. Really good to see you again, Karen. So glad. So Allie and I were just having a love fest for the last half hour before we got on. So, so Allie, you have so many things going on. I'm so excited. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are? I want you to talk about your book. I want you to talk about your shake it up for self-acceptance, all these things. And then we're going to get more into the podcast. Wow. Okay. So I am super passionate. I cannot help it. It is just, it's just within me. Um, And the book is called Meaningful, which I, oh my gosh, I am just insanely blessed for the journey. And I don't mean that in, in a creepy way. I just mean, it's been such a fortunate, beautiful, beautiful journey. It's something I had in my mind for a long, long time, and I didn't know how to pull it together. Um, It's called Meaningful. 23 life-changing stories of conquering dieting, weight, and body image issues. And it actually comes from an evolution. Shake It for Self-Acceptance is actually something that happened before, but taught me a lot. And I guess, you know, it's funny. I kind of just want to say to people, even when you feel like, what the hell am I doing in life? Like, this this is not going to help me in the future. I'm to that point in life where I'm almost 50, and so many things that I've done that I just thought were random one-off experiences have all rolled like a tumbleweed into 
facilitating other experiences. And um, so that brings me to, I, I, I don't know how brief you wanted that. When you say, tell me about yourself, I'm like, oh my God. Um, <laughs> I want you to do just this because this is why I love you. So for people who don't know, Allie and I worked together, gosh, 11 years ago. So so Allie's got the best energy, in fact, and I know now I'm interrupting, but um, as we, as listeners always know, I have I have guests fill out questionnaires before they get on. I don't even think we're going to get to your questions because there's so so much other good stuff to talk about. I know you worked hard on them. I know you did. Go for it. Keep going, my darling. Let's talk about the book. So the book Getting There, though, because this is a really hugely important piece, is I was watching these different mental health events. And I was like, my gosh, when we're trying to reach the public and teach them, why are we talking about statistics where I can see lightning in the background? Why are we talking about things that... The public, I watch them like literally lean in, catch a few words and walk away in public events. So I got this insane idea about, because I went to my first flash mob and it was a cause-driven flash mob. And I thought, well, what if we started teaching about self-acceptance through fun and flash mob dance? And then that could lead its way into questioning, you know, what's in your way of self-acceptance? Is it your body image? Is it maybe an eating disorder. Maybe you don't know you have an eating disorder. Maybe you're struggling with self-compassion. Maybe you have mental health. Maybe like, I thought if we can educate and get people having so much fun that then they're open to the heavier education piece after, can this work? And it was such a, just an amazing experience. All the speeches were super inspirational. Yeah, they gave a little bit of pain just so that you could have the payoff of the life-changing moment. So I have all the speeches still on the Shake It for Self-Acceptance website. They're isolated into two minutes because they're conversation starters. They're someone else's life story that has an inspiring moment that I hope can affect other people. That led me into, after doing Shake It for all these years, I'm like, well, what's going on in the memoir eating disorder teaching field? What if... I did short stories. What if I collected a bunch of diverse experiences spanning the spectrum of eating issues from quote unquote normal dieting all the way through really serious clinical eating disorders? What about body shaming? What about skinny shaming? What about all of the different ways that we struggle? And I can't say, you know, no book's going to ever cover everything. But what I hope is that through reading it, people see themselves, see people's recovery and healing stories, whether it was from, you know, something that just was in the way of them having a meaningful, fulfilling life, or whether it was something really diagnostically serious, lightning, lightning. Um, <laughs> you know, I really want people to be able to find pieces of themselves in each of these different stories. So there's almost a formula. It's a short story. Uh, people go through what their what their life and their struggle was. They go through the points in hindsight of what they believed helped them heal, and then we have a most of them have a conclusion about where they are now. First section is called discoveries, and we span all of these discoveries spanning the spectrum of eating in body image issues. Then we go into insights, which is that. You know, what you and I have in hindsight, some of these things, I'm like, oh my gosh, I see it now. But when I was in it, I was just like, I'm going to diet better and harder. You know, I, I don't even think I sometimes realized that I actually had a clinical eating disorder. So then um, you take insights. And then the last section is because 
I don't, we feel so alone. So the whole book is about connecting us. We are all connected in struggles, in triumphs. I had tons of test readers read it. And I remember one is really, really in more in the addictions field. And she said, my gosh, I was so surprised at how much of this applied to my work, to my journey. And so I just thought, my gosh, the whole thing started as a proof of concept in all truthfulness. I was like, can this work? Oh, so at the end of the stories, then me, I come in and comment as the, you know, eating disorder expert, specialist, whatever. And um, so anything that could have been confusing within the story or possibly triggering, I try to expand upon, introduce things like, you know, some people like the word larger bodied. Some people like the word fat. Some people can't handle either word. Like it's about respecting where each person was and giving someone to think about, giving someone more about if, um, if meditation helps someone to heal and they really believe that was a big piece of their healing. Well, I want to give some references. I want to give more food to digest, no pun intended, but kind of pun intended about how to just kind of open the, open up people's lives to have fulfilling, full, awesome lives which is usually why we start dieting and having body image issues that we try to solve anyway. Do you, that's my opinion. Karen, what do you think about that? First of all, I think that everything you just said is so awesome. I cannot wait for this book to be released. Just so we know, you said it's coming out late January, correct? It is officially, it's on pre-order now, but it will be officially released late January. And it took, honestly, it took about three years, a bunch of legal consults. Like I didn't know, God, if I can, gosh, if I can give this to readers. I was so driven by the purpose of this. Like it was the book I needed 20 years ago. It was the book that I think might've cut off some of my struggle and some of my realizations by reading someone else. Because the whole thing a clinician can read this and learn about eating disorders, the hair defining differences between diagnoses, but it's not academic. It is straight storytelling with commentary because how do we learn but by feeling? And frankly, rather than going and touching the hot stove myself, sometimes I actually would like someone to describe how incredibly painful it was so I can be like, oh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> or that's how you got out. Holy crap, can I try that? You and I are very similar like this. We are, I and by the way, I, I'm not saying you're not as, as in, in the same realm as, I could never put myself in the same realm as Anita Johnston. Anita is the, the most fabulous storyteller in the land, but you and I are storytellers. And I am not, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm sure there's a lot of professionals out there that are listening to this going, that's not something I'd admit on a podcast. But when I go to these conferences, because I go to conferences all the time, I glaze over when it's the talks about statistics, when it's the talks about, by the way, it is very important. These numbers are important. The research is super important, but there's also two kinds of people in the world. The people that love research and statistics and Allie, I thank God every day that they're here. And then there's people like you and I who are storytellers feeling, we want to share, we want to hear what somebody else is experiencing. We can't all be the same. Thank God there's different types of people. We need all of us in this world. And honestly, I hid behind. I mean, if it, like, 
you and I were talking about this. Um, in some ways, this is my own kind of today on, on Recovery Bites. This is in some ways my own exposing of myself. And I'm trying to get used to talking about myself. Even in the book, I, I, the prologue is my story. It's the longest of the stories. Frankly, it's the most boring of the stories, but I cover all the, oh no, oh, trust me. When you read the rest of the book, it like, I have the most, oh my God, I cannot wait to share. This thing, I could never have done it without being recovered because it was a gut project. It started as a proof of concept. And I literally put together three stories. God bless my incredibly patient people who I was like, hey, can I pick your brain for a story? And I love statistics. I love academic stuff. I hid behind it for years because I felt like other people's words were more important to share than mine, were more true than mine, were more believable than mine. Now I'm finding a way to kind of incorporate all of it, which is a bit of the commentary at the end, which is about, listen, there are high mortality rates. That's true. And we need to know that. We need to honor that in the field of eating disorders. If you have a loved one with an eating disorder, that is a reality. I'm not going to go around it. We need all of it. Um, but even in the process of writing my own story, uh, it was so, God, I just did so much healing about what I can claim and own, what doesn't trigger someone, what I can make generic so that it applies to somebody who looks and feels different than me, but it's still so similar. So it, it's been such an artful journey that made me grow. I had to pay someone so many times when I put this sucker down and I was like, um, in fact, at one point I'd written part of the proof of concept and I started sharing it with friends. And I, I mean this in utter love. They were like, this is amazing. And in my head, I was like, it's not, it's shit, it's shit. I know it's shit. I, I don't know how to fix it. I don't, I just know how to write academic. <laughs> so I ended up having to hire someone. And because finally someone was like, listen, you know what? She didn't quite say it was shit, but what I interpreted was that it was shit. And you can bleep all that, I don't care. I'm just being really, really frank. And so I knew it wasn't, but I didn't know how to get it to be a real book. And I gave up conferences for a year and I just paid to have someone tell me and train me into how to write a non-traditional book, how to write something that had been in my mind for years, but I kept running into that problem of how do I do it? Nobody else has done it in quite this way that I can see. How do I cover this much? How do I make somebody not feel excluded, but I need to give enough specifics so that it's identifiable and relatable, but still somebody doesn't feel excluded from that story because it's that person's story. This is also where you and I were talking about how do I own my voice, even though it doesn't seem to be the popular way, like the popular crowd. And so I know for me, I used to, for years, feel insecure. I always felt like an imposter in the field of eating disorders. I felt like an imposter in my eating disorder. I felt like an imposter my entire life. And I used to go to conferences and I felt like you, I'm gonna use the word insignificant, but just less than because I didn't fit into what I thought was a traditional eating disorder specialist. Again, with the statistics, with the research, with the lingo, with the this. This was me also in my eating disorder, feeling like I had to fit into something to the point that I made myself sick 
through restricting laxatives, over-exercise, diet pills, emotional distress, because I thought if everybody else fit a mold and I didn't, there's obviously something wrong with me. As I got older and recovered, I thought, oh my God, I have a unique voice. And if other people want to listen, fantastic. If not, that doesn't mean I'm less than. I just need to be myself. And that was a huge part of my recovery process. I am so 100% on the same page. There was this I not only, I mean, I'm right with you, the fraud thing, the not quite fitting in. So, you know, the perfectionist in me kept trying to do things better and better and be better and be more. I knew that perfection was never a destiny, but pushing myself for the best products, the best whatever. Now it's a choice. It's not compelled. It's a choice. This book evolved over three years. Um, it, the proof of concept, and I'll go back to the gut piece Oh my goodness, my head is so many places. But on the not fitting in, uh, one of your questions was, what is something that, what's a fact that is really hard to accept? And I was like, oh shoot, I shouldn't say this on a podcast and I shouldn't say this publicly because in some ways it gives people ammo against me who you know may, may not favor me. Um, but honestly, one of the hardest things to accept is that I'm gonna annoy some people just by being me. And I used to try to change to not be received in ways that didn't feel warm and gracious. And now I've learned some people just don't feel warm and gracious. It doesn't mean I'm wrong. I actually mostly, except when I do something that makes me feel bad about myself, I look in the mirror, and this is interesting about body distortions. Um, I look in the mirror and I don't see a body to pick on. I actually just see a person who really tries to do good and a person who tries, you know what I mean? Like, so when I look in the mirror, I have so much, if it sounds weird, I'm still really hard on myself, but I have a lot of self-compassion and this sounds super stinky, but I'm going to say it. A lot of the people, as I look back, the people that I was like, oh, they don't, I annoy them. I don't fit in. Part of me is like, thank God I didn't really favor them. I'm only laughing because it is so true when we look back and think, but there's a reason why I didn't fit in with them because I don't share the same values. So why was I trying so hard? That's a question, Karen. I mean, that is a beautiful question. And I don't mean to flip the interview on you, but why the heck do we try so hard? I think it's in that pursuit of feeling safe, but there's got to be a general universal answer. Why do we try so hard to fit in and belong in places where instead, like for me, I just needed to find my people. I just needed to find the people that I could be around and be me and we laugh and I love their quirks. And I, even when we, you know, I just, I just needed to find people who had value. It's that, it's the values. But what's the underlying? Safety? The, I think the underlying is nobody wants to feel excluded because excluded makes us say, again, it's, it's me. Is there something wrong with me? I also think when it comes to safety, we feel safe if we're included. We feel safe because we're not 
testing the norms if we go along with the crowd. I also want to say these are all answers that I'm giving from back when I was in my eating disorder. That is not my answer now. I think those were for me what went into my eating disorder. I, first of all, I also had tremendous anxiety. I had social anxiety. And so I needed to mimic other people because I didn't know how to be a social human being. So for me to fit in gave me the, the, the external cues that I was doing it right, whatever it is. That's so interesting. Um, I, I don't think I ever fit in and I grew to actually appreciate it because my brain is a weirdo, but I, I, I like, I mean, my brain is kind of strange, but I like it. Now that I'm nearly 50 again, like this is all, this came way after recovery. I just tolerated myself, tolerated my body, was appreciative that it worked. Like, I think that there's a lot of stages in recovery per se. Um, you know, there was a time that I just wanted my eating disorders and dieting and body image because I bounced in and out for, for decades. Um, or I, maybe I was clinical. I don't know. I don't have memories except of my, and I talk about this in my, in my own story, but like one of the things that helped me get better was anger. And a lot of people are fearful of anger. I love it. I think it is so informative that something's off. And when I looked at years and years of my pictures and my photo albums, and I knew my dress size or I knew my body weight, but I didn't know who I was with, why I was there, um, what the memories were attached to it, beautiful events in my family's lives. I was like, oh my God, I really remember nothing but my size. This is why I often speak at colleges and universities. And I say, the first thing I say to them when I'm up on stage is, I wish I were sitting in your seat and I wish I had a do-over because I don't remember college at all. And it wasn't because I was partying. It wasn't because I was, you know, staying up late, doing drugs, doing alcohol. I was in my eating disorder, in my mind, behaviors, the whole, for five years. It took me five years to get through college because of my eating disorder. I don't, and I've said this before. I have high school friends who every once in a while will be like, oh yeah, once a year I go away with my college group of friends. And I'm like, oh, what is it like to have a group of college friends? I didn't, I don't have any memories from college. Go ahead. I really understand. And I, on a differing note, I wouldn't go back if you gave me a million dollars. There is so much learning and I don't need, to, I, I don't, want or need to remember i've actually like believe it or not this is one of the ways that social media i've been able to reconnect with people that i don't you know that i've gotten to know even if it's on social media but we've gotten to know each other now and support each other now and the book has been kind of going back to the recovery piece because i think this is a huge piece of hope for people who are in the recovery process Number one, it's bit by bit. Um, sometimes you have to stay in a spot before you get used to moving. I never ever would have seen myself where I am now. I had given in thinking that, that I would 
be in that space for the rest of my life of struggling, of giving so much time and energy daily to behaviors, whether it was, you know, time of being in a serious eating disorder or just mildly, whatever, there's no mild, but you know what I mean? Like it's not as disruptive. Um, and here's where I blew myself out of the water because I did, and God, I'm just so grateful for aging. People enjoy getting older and, oh, I like, I love, I just, aging is awesome because of the wisdom. Um, I did meaningful in a way that I've never done anything. And that is instead of letting my brain talk me in or out of anything, I allowed my body to inform me. As I was building the proof of concept, I wanted to see, you know, how different will these be? What diagnoses, what non-diagnoses, what uh, cultures, what, you know, just what experiences? Because I want, I noticed that we don't have a lot of diversity in our field of diagnoses, of race, of religion, like there's just not a lot of representation. And so that's something that felt important to me. And I also feel like sometimes people in larger bodies are, you know, misrepresented also, people in very, very thin bodies are often misrepresented or don't have a voice because they're not allowed to because of privilege. And I don't mean that. I don't want, I'm, I'm not trying to start something here, but I just thought, God, you know what? Let me just think about the people I've met in my life and who resonates in my heart. I literally contacted people that I barely knew from years ago. I just happened to either be connected this way or have a number or an email. And I asked them, do you, you know, here's what I'm doing. I'm doing a proof of concept. Are you interested? Do you have a story? And inevitably, people gave me time. They let me record things. They signed off. We wrote the stories. Either people wrote their full stories themselves, and then I edited and put it in the format, and we bounced back and forth. Um, people gave me interviews, and we built the stories from there. Maybe if they didn't have time, I'd write it from the interview. Then we'd bounce it back and forth. And because I didn't know what the heck I was doing, some of them actually dealt with my revisions for about two years. And these are all people that I literally just chose from gut. And through talking, they chose to trust me. And I chose, and I found their voice and their story. And I just like, I could, and the few times my brain kind of overrode me and, and was like, my brain pushed me into something or someone, it screwed me. So it was very interesting to learn my head and my body used to be so disconnected that my head felt everything and it wasn't feelings. It was my head said things. The thoughts that you hear, it's not psychotic, but we hear our thoughts. And this, I think one of the reasons why I feel so friggin' blessed by Meaningful is, number one, Meaningful is I'm the curator, but I'm really just the mama of this beautiful collaborative. I, could, I reached out to so many people for test reads, for social justice reads, if they had a, a passion in an area or a sensitivity that I didn't have, a lived experience. Um, I like when you look, I kept track. I tried to keep all the names for, for the years that I worked on it. The list is huge. This is, it represents a lot of people and it is a product of a lot of people, not an endorsement. I wouldn't say anybody endorsed it, but I would say that I wanted to say thank you to the beautiful souls who gave me a lot of time, a little time, uh, a quick answer to a research question I needed. Like it didn't matter how big or small, they gave me their time, their heart, and their wisdom. And to me, if that's the collaboration I want more of in life. I love unity. I think that all of our 
eyeballs see so many things that one set of eyeballs can't see. There's so many things I want to point out. First of all, the fact that so many people were willing, wanting all of it to work with you on this book shows that we are a community of people that want to share our stories. We don't live in silence and isolation, but that's what happens in the eating disorder. And the farther you go into the eating disorder, the more your voice gets silent, the more you're in isolation. And by the way, your soul, your heart is yearning to talk and say, this is what is really happening inside. One of the reasons why I love being a therapist is because I want to hear what is in their heart and what is in their soul. I don't want them to be silenced anymore. So I say, it's okay. Let's talk about all of it. All of it. People are craving to be heard, to feel seen, and to feel connected. And to not feel shamed, attuned to, really heard, even if it's something that is really vulnerable to be honored in that we're all human. We all have stuff in our heads. Yep. The other thing, two more things, is that, oh, because sometimes I forget. Okay. You, myself, every single person I know who is recovered has said the words, I thought everybody else could do it but me. When you are in the eating disorder, you think everybody else, maybe, and they're not saying it like in an easy way, but other people can do it. I can't. I didn't want to. Awesome. Talk about that. I want to hear. I was like, hey, I just want this to take up less time in real estate in my head. Like this is super screwed. So what shifted for you? But what happened, and I, my story, like I said, mine's the longest and probably the most boring and probably gives the most hints of how I had never sat and thought about what did I need? Why did I recover? Because I was so okay with either dying. And I, I, I really like, I look back and I'm like, my gosh, I have no idea why I got through because I know my body now that I'm so educated about it, I'm lucky. And I mean, I'm lucky. And at the time, I didn't care if nobody could see it. Like, it just didn't matter if my heart felt weird. If I was dizzy, it just didn't matter. Until like my face got all puffy and weirdo. <laughs> um, but what really shifted was my biggest shifts came from the anger. The anger of missing those memories. The anger of wanting memories. Um, I think, I think that was a big piece. I had to get really honest. I was with a therapist who was a generalist. And oh my gosh, I love this woman so very, very much. And I don't think it's inappropriate to have love for your therapist or your therapist to love you. Um, Carl Rogers uses the unconditional positive regard. So for years I've been you know, appropriately saying, I unconditionally positive regard you. What does that mean? Come on. I have appropriate love for the people that allow me to be on their journeys with them, that allow me to learn their heart, learn their head, and honestly share in their shame so they're not alone feeling so icky. And then we can kind of unpack it. 
And I think my therapist did a lot of those things. And so one day I'd been with her for years and I was like, Hey, here's what I do. Here's what I've been doing for years. Here's how many times I do it. And I need accountability. And I remember her because she is, Connie, if you hear this, you're going to laugh at me doing your imitation of you. But I remember she's because she sits in this way and, and she goes, <clears throat> I hadn't quite realized that. And I want to say that to listeners because sometimes you feel like a bad therapist if your client hasn't told you something. Sometimes people say, you know, how can you work with eating disorders? They lie. No, they, they, they don't hold the truth for themselves or they hold a truth that maybe is different. And that's really an important phase. And I think that was part of when I was, and I don't recommend that I do, I do recommend, I don't know what I recommend. Things work different for everyone. Had she been super trained in eating disorders, maybe it would have lasted less long. But for me, the fact that I survived, I'm very, very lucky because I have stuff, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be here now. And for me, the journey was in the way that it needed to happen. And once I was able to be, once I really made the decision that I didn't want this stealing my life and my memories anymore, it wasn't restarting, but up until then, it was trying for a different life and eh, whatever, it didn't work, not a big deal. I got this till I die. And if that's early, that's fine. So you said you were with your therapist for years. And one day you said, I have to tell you all these things that I've been doing. What shifted that? Because basically, guys, um, to, to, to just be totally straightforward, you know those horrible, horrible things that you hear in your head? It was one of those nights that I was like, oh my God, that came out of my mouth. And I just, oh, the table's looking at me. So I, I did it. I said it. I dropped that bomb. Was that enough to stop me from having an eating disorder? <laughs> no. One of the things I'm avoiding talking about because I'm going to cry my butt off is her. She came back to me and she just was so honest about being worried and she didn't care that I could leave her as a friend, that I was going to be mad at her. And she just said the most, I don't know why this makes me cry so hard, except she was so brave. She was like, listen, I love you and I'm willing to lose her friendship. Because I'm going to be honest, I don't think what you're doing is normal. I know you think it's fine and you call it your little maintenance pet name. And she said stuff that was just so, like, she saw me. She saw my struggle. And she saw that she wanted a different life for me. And she was brave enough because for years, nobody saw it. Like, they, they, you know, applauded. We're such a funny, weird-ass society in that... You know, like when somebody says you've lost weight, like, don't say thank you. What if you have cancer? What if you have an eating disorder? Like, no, that's not a compliment. So, and then when you get too, too sick, whether, you know, no matter where your weight is, if people see something that concerns them, they may not say anything. And she just put, she just put love. Right there. Someone saw you. Really? unbelievable friend, human being, and courageous soul. And I want to say you also were courageous enough 
to internalize that message. Because Allie, you could have turned your head and said the famous words, I'm fine, and walked away. I did. I mean, I did that many times before, but nobody had really, it was just, I could feel her. So it was different. And there was somebody I apologized to because when I was much younger, um, I literally, she was like, listen, I'm concerned. And um, I was like, you're just trying to sabotage me. You are trying to ruin my future. Because she was an adult, but that's the jerky way that the eating, like a lot of people ask me, you know, how, so here's another piece of the book. There were so many things I wanted to cover. And one of them is eating disorders are presented in such an academic way. And before I ever recovered, first of all, I didn't know that recovery was even an option. It was like a dirty little secret because I, I knew I felt different than I was working with um, people who were struggling. And I knew I just felt different. I was volunteering and just supporting people and trying to help them navigate. So a couple things. Number one is what lined up is number one, my friend doing that. I was ready to hear it. Um, my parents were getting a lot older and it kind of freaked me out that I had like my memories were weight and not fam. Like I'd look at family pictures and I'm like, oh my God, I totally ruined that trip. Like I took my little record player and I exercised the entire trip and didn't experience jack squat. Like, so I just, I honestly, anger, really, if we really look at what all of those things combined and the anger really, really helped me heal. The other thing I was trying to say is um, that I think that on, whatever, I've lost what I was going to say, but the, but a piece is, um, I think that I would have done the, I'm fine and kept walking at a different time. And so the message I give to anyone who's a caregiver or a friend with that is keep trying, keep trying, do it with love, do it with honesty, get off the eggshells, man. If you, and that's, I, maybe that's where I was going is the eating disorder or the stuff can hold you hostage, which actually ends up kind of making you enable someone getting more powerful and sicker. And they're, I mean, their eating, eating stuff gets more and more powerful. I just really invite you. There's something about my girlfriend just did it in such a natural way, but it was such a beautiful way of not talking about her experience of me about her. It was so generously, I'm concerned about you. Here's why. I love you. And it was really beautifully said instead of being about me needing to take care of her and her worry. It was really about, you know, and, and I may lose you as a friend, but I just need to say this because I don't think this is right. And I want you to get support and maybe, you know, if it's not right, fix it. I want you to have a life. And so that's, that's all the stuff when I really, you know, when you say, why did you recover? Not everybody has that rock bottom moment where they're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to change. Mine were little bit by, you know, it started with, I want less behaviors. I want less real estate in my mind taken up. Then it shifted to, I want to feel more. And then it's like, if I really look back, it, it just kept shifting and shifting along the way too. I had to stop trying to be what other, what I thought fit in with other people and learn who the hell I was, whether I liked her all the time or not, didn't matter. I just, I got ugly, ugly sides to me. Everybody does. But you know what? It's interesting. Like, 
who wants to be in a relationship with a Stepford wife? Come on, we're colorful, we're quirky. I mean, Karen, when we work together, there, you know, the parts of us, sometimes I loved that you were so like not a normal research. I just love, I was like, she's so interesting. I, I, you know, I had to learn that again, here's what I have to offer. If this matches, then great. And if not, then I don't belong here anyway. And I don't mean that in a way of like, you don't belong here, Karen, meaning I didn't belong. I also want to say, and again, people hear me use the same examples all the time on the podcast, and I feel so badly, but I had to really embrace that I don't look like anybody, and thankfully so. I have my own style. I have my own way of communicating. I have my own, I, I am not like most people. And that's a gift. And if others don't like it, that's okay. Doesn't mean my feelings don't get hurt, but I don't, I don't, I don't wear traditional trendy clothes. I'm not into trends. I'm into my own look. I don't have a traditional head of hair. I used to try to straighten my hair when I was in my eating disorder. I don't think in ways that other people do, which is why I'm a therapist. I think with my heart. I don't think from my head. I don't I don't think numbers. I don't think projection sheets. I don't think this. I had to figure all those things out and then realize there is still a place in the world for me. And once I got to that, I really like myself. And that took a long time to say. Oh, I was just thinking in the same way. It's you know, even as a clinician, when I first started, uh, actually, Carolyn, Carolyn, I was really, really blessed. She pulled me aside one day and she said, you know, you need to be a human being, not a therapist. And it really resonated with me in that I was trying to be such a good student. And I was still in that, even though I was recovered, you know, and again, recovery deepens and deepens. My recovery now is different than it was 10, 50, however long. God, I don't even know. I don't even have that date to celebrate because it was such an incremental long journey. Um, and my note to people on that is don't give up, keep going. If you need to rest somewhere, rest. And then if you decide you want changes, do it. Keep, you know, obviously monitor safety. You've got to stay safe. But past that, like, just, <sighs> just keep going, man, just keep going. And I mean, man, as a universal there. Um, but Carolyn, I think probably I have to give her credit as a therapist, you know, also credit to many, many other contributions. But she said, you know, just be a human being. And I was like, but I swear like a sailor. And I was kind of panicked about that because that's that's really like a big part of me. I, I Yes, that's true. And um, Carolyn's like, then do it because when you're working with, you know, these are canaries in the coal mine and people are, all of us have different levels of sensitivities. Some people can sniff an error of falseness from miles away. And so that really helped me as a clinician. If I, I think that she said something like, if they run into, or what I took from it was, if a client runs into you at the store, that you can't be different than how you were in session. And at first I thought, oh my gosh, how could that be? You know, how unprofessional would I be, blah, blah, blah. And honestly, I think that is part of what gives me longevity 
part of what's allowed me to be let in. When people say, you know, I feel like Allie's a friend, some of my therapist friends panic for me. And I'm like, no, actually that feels, I, I'm like, I just don't use the big words, but the concepts are all there. Like, there's just no reason. I've just translated into human speak with a few F-bombs. I love it. Allie, it is what people are craving is authenticity. That's that's what everybody wants. And it is it is true. Clients can tell when you're like, hi, I'm Allie and I'm putting on my therapist's cap. And I so did that. By the way, <laughs> I remember. Because <laughs> you were my boss. You totally knew. Oh my God, it's a little embarrassing. <laughs> it is not embarrassing. But I remember therapist Allie. And now this is human Allie. And by the way, I was therapist Karen at the beginning. We, we, we have to, we have to give ourselves permission and understand. And that's whether you're a therapist or any human being on this earth. It's not just, we have to be authentic therapists. We have to be authentic people or we fall into eating disorders, depression, anxiety, substance abuse. And a permission to add on to that, a permission to be an authentic person sometimes might mean when you look around and you're not fitting in, actually maybe they're not fitting into your heart, to your values. Find where you are more aligned. And Karen, I feel like, I mean, there's, there's a part of me that's like, gosh, I had this all planned and it was tidy. It was conversational and tidy. What themes are you pulling from today? Because I'm like, how are you going to string this together into a podcast? Can you, what have you heard that thematically all kind of goes together? I have heard that authenticity is a huge part of recovery. I have heard that it takes a long time, similar to how long it took you to write your book. Recovery takes a long time. Not for, since I've been a clinician, everyone's different. Everyone's different. You're right. I do want to say that. I do. I think I'm used to working with high levels of care. So for me, I'm like, mm, this is going to take a little while. And so, so that's, that's that. It's also about definition. It's about readiness. I mean, I, cause I've been working with all different levels of care and I have been taught that people really, when they get enough questions asked that they can authentically answer. They are truly their own experts because I will tell you that I have been surprised more times by thinking something was going to go long or thinking short, or I've had some, uh, what was that? Gosh, there's, there's an old cartoon about fa a fast character. And I've, I've just been like, whoa, I was so wrong. And I'm so grateful for that. So I just, I needed to say that whether you're fast or you're, you're, you take some time, like whatever, but when you white knuckle, it's, it has a hard time staying. By the way, we're not supposed to white knuckle it through anything. We're actually supposed to sit in the distress, ask ourselves, why is it there? What do I need? What can I learn from it? And how do I move out of it and away from it? And let me sit in this horrible feeling I think is going to kill me, but it releases. Right. It does. It does. Any more themes that we hit? What, I let me think about this. Well, what do, what do you think the themes are? Part of my journey and the pay like pay it forward piece has been the advocacy of some people. You know, my passion is reaching general public, and I hope that this what we've just talked about also extends because so many people don't realize that they're sick. 
they think that they're failing at dieting. They think that they're failing at body positivity. And actually what happened is there's a button inside of them and something happened to flip the button on because it might not have been the first diet. It might, but now it's, I'm not getting this right. I've got to find the right one. And they may have cycled into an actual eating disorder. And that is one of my advocacy pieces is I want to reach the people who are also outside of knowing this already. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to wake, wake up and share that. There's 90 in 2016, see here, I come with my statistics, which is crazy. 90 million diet, over 90 million diet. I think it was 97 million dieters, quote unquote, uh, active dieters in the United States. Well, you mean to tell me that a lot of them don't have their, their diets in the way of their lives being meaningful, full, awesome lives. They're thinking if they lose weight, their life's going to be what they want it to be. I also want to say, now throwing out a statistic, is that of those 97 million dieters, I guarantee you a major portion of them turn into eating disorders. And from that, every 52 minutes, somebody dies from an eating disorder. So what starts as a diet, you could then end up being in the statistic of every 52 minutes. And not know it. And if no one along the way notices or says, that's why I'm like, get off the eggshells. I want to teach people, get off the eggshells with love. Tell people when you're worried, when you love them, you have still seen potentially their pain. And that matters. 30 something years later, I went back to that one who I was like, oh, she just, what do you mean too thin? She's ruining my life. I went back and I said, my gosh, thank you for seeing me. I didn't realize it then, but you actually saw something was wrong. I want to say one more thing, and then I'm going to ask a final question. I also want to say that words do not fall on deaf ears. Even if somebody is not ready to hear it, somewhere it gets internalized. And when they are ready, that message will mean a lot to them. Yes, and on that even if you go from a spot of not like being so exhausted that you don't value life, in all honesty, I, although I look like I was having a blast and I was probably fairly well known and blah, 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 I friggin' tolerated life for a very long time. Now I actually, as the title says, meaningful, F-U-L-L, my life is full. I've got a health thing right now where I'm like, oh my God, I need a screening because I don't want to go. I want to stay healthy. I've got more things to do that feel fulfilling and purposeful. It took a long time to feel, feel joy, but it came. And you know, maybe it, it wouldn't have had to because honestly, purposeful and meaningful for me and my temperament is also incredibly wonderful. Allie, you are such an eloquent speaker. I could listen to you all day. It's very, very beautiful the way you speak. And it's killing me that we're coming to a closing. I do want to ask you one question, though. Before we end, we are getting away from eating disorders, okay? Allie, your question is, if you were a character in a movie, book, or television show, what genre would you live in? 
anything with finger waves. When I was considering going to a th- going to therapy school or I was thinking about a hairstylist or therapy school. I love period hairstyles. So you get me in the 20s, 30s, preferably late 40s because then we've got the fashions going. Oh yeah, so anything with a finger wave in my hair. Okay, this is how much I didn't understand at first. I thought you meant finger waves like like fingers, like waving, like finger puppets or something. No, you take your fingers and bring it back, bring it forward, bring it back. It's that gorgeous, like oceanic hair. I didn't understand it was going towards a hairstyle. I was like mouthing to you, like, what are finger waves? Literally, I just have always, I don't like the oppression that women went through back then, but my goodness, the style, the glam, the energy, honestly, I am so far on the scale of femininity, just that, again, there's a lot of oppression with femininity, but I just, there, there's, there was an incredible power to the styles and the hairstyles. So when you say any character, for me, I'm like, oh, how fun to, I, even though I hate costumes, that would be one that I'd be like, yeah, I'm down with it occasionally. What about you? You've never answered that. I would say it's not a genre. My fantasy, everyone, is to, I can't believe I'm, I want to marry John Cusack, but mostly, no offense, John, but because I want Joan Cusack to be my sister-in-law. Who doesn't want Joan Cusack in their life? And who doesn't love a John Cusack film? Here's another fun fact about me, and then we are going to have to tie it up. So uh, I lived in San Francisco for about 14 years, and all my friends knew I was a huge John Cusack fan, all of them. Then I moved down to Los Angeles to work at Montanito for a few years, where John Cusack lives in Los Angeles. I started getting, my phone was blowing up one morning, and all my friends from San Francisco were like, please say you're not in jail. Please say you're not in jail. Please. And I'm like, what is going on? I guess there was a woman who was stalking John, John Cusack, got arrested, and all my friends from San Francisco automatically assumed it was me. They're like, I'm sure it was Karen. I'm sure right now Karen's sitting in LA County Jail because she was stalking John Cusack. I was I was at Montanito. I'm at my desk. I'm about to go in and run primary group and I keep getting ping, ping, ping. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? Everybody thought that it was me. Nope. So I love you, John, but I'm not going to stalk you. You too, Joan. <laughs> Good girl. Allie. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. It was awesome seeing you again after 10 years of not seeing your face. So good to see yours. And just thank you for the opportunity and for just being so easy to talk with. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's it for this week's. I got to Here we go again, people. I forgot the name of my show. Recovery Bites. Real talk with recovered professionals. I look forward to talking to each and every one of you next week. Stay safe. Bye-bye. To wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody. 
Be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week.